0: Today we are talking about the backstory of God's King. A backstory is the story behind the main story. It's sort of the story that leads up to the story. And I was trying to think of a good example this past week to kind of illustrate this. And the one that came to my mind first was the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. The first book he wrote in that series, he published in 1950 called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then he proceeded to publish, I think, a total of seven books. But the sixth one that was published in 1955 is called The Magician's Nephew. And it is sort of the prequel. It is the backstory. So if you're only going to read one story, by all means, read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But if you read it and you're captured by it and you say, I want to know more about this uncle and I want to know more about Narnia and how this came to be. Well, then you need to read the backstory, the prequel, The Magician's Nephew. So here's the point. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the main story of the king. But today, we're looking at the backstory story of the king. We're looking at Ruth. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. If you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. This is a book that only has four chapters, so it can be difficult to find. So I always tell people, there's nothing wrong with using your table of contents at the beginning of the Bible. And no judgment from me if you do, all right? Uh, I'm going to begin reading chapter 1, verse 14. And this is at the beginning of the story where Naomi is speaking with her daughters-in-law. All right. Ruth chapter 1, beginning verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Marah, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Let's pray. Father, we pray for Your blessing and Your presence as we open Your Word. Do Your work in us by Your Spirit the same Spirit who inspired these very words before us. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Here's my summary of the book of Ruth. Uh, God is in control in difficult circumstances, working through people who are faithful and kind to accomplish His plans and purposes. And what I want to do is just look at those three phrases separately. First of all, let's start with the first phrase. God is in control in difficult circumstances. The book of Ruth is set in the context of difficult circumstances. We see this right off the bat. Chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So the story takes place during the same period of time that we looked at last week when we looked at the judges. This, by, by the way, is why in our English Bibles they put the book of Ruth following the book of Judges. Right? It's a low point for Israel. It's a low point in Israel's history. We said last week the main point of that book of Judges is to, to, to illustrate the spiritual decline and deterioration of Israel and to point out the need for a king. Israel is in need of a king. And the book of Ruth is giving us the backstory of how God provides that king. We see the consequences of Israel's sin right here in the first verse where it says they've experienced a famine in the land. Now why is Israel experiencing a famine? Probably a result of, of God's judgment, a result of God's curse. This is a part of the curse that comes when, when you disobey, that, that He warned them about. Disobey me, rebel against me, and these are one of the parts of the curse. So here they are experiencing the, the curse of God, experiencing a famine, and some of the people have to leave the land So they leave the land. In in particular, they leave Bethlehem. And they go to a foreign nation. The name of the foreign nation, foreign kingdom, is called Moab. And so she leaves there. She goes with her husband. She goes with her two sons. They spend a significant amount of time there. While they're there, the sons get married to Moabite women. And then over time, her husband dies and her two sons die. And she's left there. And in this story, she's not happy about her circumstances. Who would be? You lose your husband, you lose your two sons, you're here because of a a famine, and you're in a foreign land. Who would be happy about that? Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi, That, that name means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. She's, she's experiencing the bitterness of life. She says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She says, I went away full. When I left Bethlehem, I was full. I had family. I come back, I'm empty. I, I, I don't have my husband. I don't have my sons. And notice, she, she believes in the sovereignty of God. She says, the Lord has done this. And I don't, I, don't think she's, I don't think she's thinking about this in an unhealthy way. This is God's will. She's not happy about it. I think she's kind of like Job in this sense. She's wrestling with the reality of evil. She's wrestling with the reality of pain. She's wrestling with the reality of death. And she, 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 she believes God is sovereign. She believes God is in control. She believes, at the very least, God allowed this. And, and this is the problem. The circumstances are not good for her. The circumstances are not good for Israel. And yet, we learn this important truth. God is in control in the midst of all of it. I heard a, a pastor recently preach a sermon and he made reference to Jonah. And he, he made a, an observation that I hadn't really ever considered and it stood out to me. He talked about how when Jonah was in the belly of the fish, you know, from Jonah's perspective, this was Death. You know, he's in the tomb. He's, he's, he's a goner, right? You get swallowed by a fish, you're dead. And, 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 and he also pointed out that, you know, three days, we often just kind of say that passingly, like he was in the belly of a fish for three days. That, those were three long days. Right? Think about just after day one. Please just take my life now, Lord. Right? And he made the point, that this is the point I hadn't considered, that in the meantime, the fish that God had appointed was on the move. The fish was taking Jonah back to where he was supposed to go. Jonah had flee, you know, fleed from the Lord, running away from the Lord. What does God do? God appoints a fish to swallow him. From Jonah's perspective, he's thinking, I'm dead. Like this is the end. And this is awful. But from a bigger perspective, when you step back, God's in control. And God had appointed that fish and that fish was on the move. God was still working. And I think that's a very similar point that we see here in this story. If you put yourself in Naomi's shoes... Like, this is death. This is the end. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Life is bitter. I, I went away full. Now I'm empty. I mean, we can, we can relate with that, right? And yet, God is in control. God is on the move. He's going to redeem her situation. And we'll see more about that. Uh, I, I can't promise you this morning that God's going to do for you exactly what He do, does for Naomi by the end of the story. But, but we are encouraged by this incredible truth that we're reminded of. God is in control. He's working in the details. He's working in the backstory. He's never not on the throne. He's never not working. He's working, and the Bible says He's actually working all things together for good for those who love Him, for those who were called according to His purpose. And so just like Naomi, just like Jonah, we may not get it at the time. Why? And I want to point out, we may not ever get it in this life. Right? We may go to the grave unsure. Why did God allow that? I don't see the good in that. And I, I think you're justified in that if you feel that way. And I think we need to be prepared. Many of us will experience that. But we can still trust this great truth here. God is in control. He's on the move. The fish is on the move. He's working together, all things together for good. And perhaps you need to hear this word from God this morning. Trust Him in the midst of your circumstances. Maybe you, you, you relate with Naomi and you say, I'm feeling really empty right now. Trust God's Word. Hear God's Word and believe it. He cares and He's in control and He's with you and He's working together all things for good. God is on the move. Right? God is in control in difficult circumstances. Secondly, He's working through people who are faithful and kind. Now, we made this point last week, I think it's, and it's an important point. Just because there's a story in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean the point is that's an example you should follow. Sometimes the story is there and it's not an example to follow. In fact, I would say often it's not an example to follow, especially when you're reading the book of Judges. Right? Don't go to the book of Judges looking for examples to follow. There's not many. Now, here's, the book of Ruth is this breath of fresh air because it's filled with examples to follow. Four short chapters, short book, but every character in the book is virtually an example to follow. And so it's a very nice breath of fresh air coming on the hills of the judges. And it's a very unique book in that way. You don't find many books in the Bible where all the characters are virtually exemplary and and they are examples to follow. I just want to highlight two. I'm going to highlight first of all the example of Ruth and what we can learn from Ruth. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Naomi tells her daughter-in-laws, why don't you girls stay here in Moab? This is where your family is. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem to my family. And the one daughter-in-law says, okay, you know, she's talked into it. She stays behind. Ruth says, no, I'm sticking with you. And it says she clung to her. And that that word clung is the same word that's used in Genesis 2.24 to describe the way a husband and wife are supposed to cling to one another when they come to one another in marriage. In marriage, you're supposed to leave and cleave. Leave your family behind. Leave your parents behind. There's a severing. Cut the ties. Leave and cleave. You come together as one. And so the language that's used here in Ruth is covenantal language. It's, 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 it's cleaving, it's holding fast to. In fact, it's, it's such powerful language that a lot of people use it in their weddings. And I'll just issue a quick warning. You know, The context is she's making this pledge to her mother-in-law. So be careful if you're going to use this in your wedding. Make sure you know what you're pledging your allegiance to. right? I don't know how many of you want to pledge your allegiance to your mother-in-law. Right? Uh, But this this term for clinging to is is the same term that's used in Deuteronomy four times to describe the way we're supposed to hold fast to God. So man and woman are supposed to hold fast to one another in marriage. Ruth holding fast to her mother-in-law. And we're supposed to hold fast to God. And and by clinging to Naomi, she's clinging to God. She's pledging allegiance to God. Look look at verses 16 and 17. Powerful verses, chapter 1. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is an incredible example to follow. And by the way, I've seen this kind of example in our very church. I've seen people in our church who were elderly and they didn't have other family members to really care for them in their time and need. And I've seen people in our church family who are not biologically related to them, step up and serve them like a family member. And you just got to stand back and go, wow, that is incredible. That, that's the example of Ruth. And, and by the way, those kinds of relationships don't tend to form overnight. It did not just sort of happen. It's, it's forged over time. It's forged in fire. It's, it's forged in, in serving one another. And, you know, a, a church is a great place to develop these kinds of relationships. And, and my encouragement to you is come and get involved and get connected and develop these kinds of relationships. But don't come with the mindset that says, I'm going to look for some Ruths who can take care of me in my older age, <laughs> you know, when I'm in need. You know, come with the mindset that says, who can I be a Ruth to? Who can be my Naomi? And who knows, perhaps if you come in with the with mindset of Ruth, who can I serve? Who can I, in a sense, covenant with? Covenant to, to, to serve, right? And, and love in this kind of way, you know, I, 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 my guess is there'll be a mutual relationship that'll form there. You know, I, and fortunately, I hear, I wouldn't say frequently, but I hear periodically from someone who says to me, you know, my, me and my family, we went through a very difficult time, a difficult crisis, and we didn't feel like the church was there for us. Nobody reached out. Nobody prayed. Nobody called, and it breaks my heart when I hear that. You know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that was the case. Usually, I would say nine out of ten times, it's usually coming from a person who's not connected. They maybe show up on Sunday morning, and that's about it. And you know, but part of the key is getting connected, and so that there's people that know you, and you know them, and you're praying for them, and they're praying for you. And when those type of situations come up in life, you've got built in. Naomi's in Ruth right there. So I, I'm not saying come join the church so you can find a Ruth. I am saying come join the church and be a Ruth. And who knows? Perhaps in the process, you'll develop some key relationships and you might just meet some Ruths. And it's, it's a mutual blessing. It's a mutual serving. We, we learn this from the example of Ruth. Now let's talk about the example of Boaz. What can we learn from Boaz? He, he is a relative of Naomi's husband who dies. And this is significant to the story, and we'll come back and talk about this here in a second. But when Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, Ruth happens to go glean from his field. And that's the language that's used. Chapter 2, verse 3, she happened to go to his field. And I can't help but think that's God working in the, behind the, in the details, the backstory. She happened to go to the field Of Boaz, And look at how Boaz treats Ruth and presumably presumably treats other people like Ruth. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. He says, Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So we see him protecting her. We see him being kind to her. There was a provision in God's law to not, you know, to not work the field to the edges and leave that for those who needed it. And He's providing that. And, and he's, he's not just providing that. He's going out of His way to say, I'm going to provide protection for you while you are gleaning in the field. See, in the book of Judges, we saw God's people actually violating other people. They were doing wrong. Now, a nice breath of fresh air. In the book of Ruth, He's not only not doing wrong. He's not only not violating her, he's going out of his way to try to provide protection for her, to provide, to provide justice for her. He's using his resources, his, his authority, his power, his stuff to leverage for her good, for her benefit, so that she's protected, so that she's cared for. Look at how she responds. Chapter 2, verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She's shocked by his kindness, especially because she's a foreigner. She's not not an Israelite. She's a foreigner. She's from Moab. Why are you doing this? Why are you providing this protection for me? Why are you looking out for me? It doesn't make sense to me, especially since I'm a foreigner. right? And um, he, he shows kindness to her. He gives her food until she is satisfied. It says she's satisfied with how much he gives her. And then he's able to take that back, or she's able to take it back and give it to her her mother-in-law. She's able to eat. And here's the point. We should be people like Boaz, who not only are committed to not doing wrong, which is certainly important. We should be committed to not doing wrong. We should also be committed to taking our, whatever resources we have and whatever influence we have and leveraging it for the good of others to protect people, especially people who are vulnerable, and to look out for those who are in need. And I feel compelled at this point to pause and to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention and the, Southern ba- uh, the, the sexual abuse issue that you've probably heard about in the news. I've been looking for just the perfect time to address this, and I feel like today's the perfect time. Uh, so here's my understanding of that whole situation. First of all, there have been sexual abuses in Southern Baptist churches and, by the way, in non-Southern Baptist churches as well. Any and all cases of sexual abuse are absolutely evil and unacceptable. And when they happen in a church and when they happen among children, it is especially evil and unacceptable. And I personally believe the guilty should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Uh, Secondly... The media has a way of making this sound like it has happened in a majority of Southern Baptist churches, and that's just not the case. When when you look at the numbers, it's something like 1% of churches that have been impacted by this. Now, I don't say that to say, therefore, it's a non-issue. One issue, one incident is far too many. But I do say that to say, when you do hear reports, when you do see media, you you, you have to to, uh, understand that it's possible that they're presenting in a way that's not reflecting reality. And reality is, this uh, this has not been proven to happen in, in the vast majority of Southern Baptist churches. Third point I want to make here. The executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention is the group that's responsible for making decisions every day of the year except for two days. Those two days are the two days when the annual convention happens. Every other day there's a small group of people called the Executive Committee who is responsible for making decisions on our behalf. And, and I just want to say that they they did not handle the situation well. They handled it very poorly. Uh, there was a report that came out that that indicates that they handled it poorly. And by the way, who initiated that report? The Southern Baptist Convention initiated this this external investigation to happen or an internal investigation by a third party and that report reveals the executive committee did not handle the situation well. Uh, Al Mohler, a prominent leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, described the report this way. He said the report is devastating, heartbreaking, and infuriating. And what the report revealed is there were some who seemed to be way more driven by sort of protecting the name and protecting the image and trying to keep from getting a black eye. And they, they weren't concerned with what was, what's right and what do we need to do here. And as a result, we end up getting a bigger black eye. Um, as a result, also, the Department of Justice is now involved in investigating who did what and who should have done more or less. And so we're still waiting to see what comes of that. Here's some good news at the annual conventions which take place every summer, and by the way, I've attended the past two uh, representing you, representing our congregation and others have attended as well. Uh, the convention has worked to correct the problem. Let me point out several ways. First of all, it was the Southern Baptist Convention that ordered the independent investigation of the executive committee. So they were the ones who initiated this, uh, this, this report. Secondly, um, the people who were more focused on covering up, the people who seem to be more driven by kind of the PR, they are no longer serving on the executive committee. Um, everybody that's serving on the executive committee, to the best of my knowledge, is new. And so it's, it's kind of a new day. And they are working to address this. They're working to address the problems. And, and several ways they're doing that, they, they have created a registry of sex abuse offenders for churches to use when churches are hiring. They're creating resources to equip churches to try to help prevent this from happening. And they're also creating resources to help minister to those who have been victims of this. I personally, I'm serving on the executive committee of the Colorado Baptist uh, State Convention. And the Colorado Baptist Convention has also created a sex abuse task force. And by the way, one of the members of our church is serving on that task force. And they're creating resources to try to equip churches. And one of those resources is, is their website. And from the website, you can find a plethora of resources. And so I've included a link to that website at the bottom of your sermon notes. It's coloradobaptist.org forward slash abuse. Uh, if you want to go there, some point. don't do it right now, but sometime later today, you can go check that out. All right. I want to talk about Vista Grande Baptist Church. We are an independent church. We are an autonomous church. Sometimes people say, why don't you just be independent? Well, we are. We have chosen as a church to partner with other like-minded churches. Why? We've chosen to do this in order to better do missions and in order to better do theological education. So I would argue the two main arguments for partnering with other like-minded churches and forming together to be a Southern Baptist church, why do that? One reason is foreign missions, and a second reason is theological education. If, 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 we, if the SBC ever gets to a point where it's gone off the rails, theologically or morally, I will be the first person to stand up and tell you I think this is the case. And I'll be the first person to tell you I think we need to look to disassociate from this body of churches. I, I'm more than willing to do that. Um, At this point, I don't think that's where we are. I don't think that's where we are right now. I I think it's still good for us to partner with other like-minded churches for the purpose of missions and theological education. I I think there's a lot of upside to it. But we are an independent church, and it's good for us to remember that. And so, as an independent church, we have to ask this question. Are we being like Boaz? We have a responsibility as a church to be like Boaz and protect those who are vulnerable among us. And I am grateful to the Lord to be able to tell you that I don't know of anyone who has been abused at BGBC on our watch. And I think there's several reasons for that. One is just by the grace of God. But two, we have some really good common sense policies in place to prevent this from happening. And I want to mention them to you. Number one, we do background checks on our teachers and helpers who work with our kids. So if you're going to work with our kids, You're going to have a background check done. And we don't do the background check. We send it out to the people who are authorized and able to do that, qualified to do that. Secondly, we have a policy where two volunteers are required to be in a room with kids, and the purpose is accountability. We are not okay with one volunteer being in a room with kids. Uh, Number three, we have a check-in and a check-out system so only authorized individuals can pick up children. Uh, Four, we have a security team. Who is monitoring the building? And when we have you know, kids meeting here, Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, Wednesday night, we have uh, uh, security folks who are around and they're looking and they're looking for this kind of thing. Uh, fifth, we are committed to reporting any claims of abuse, especially where a person is a minor or is in danger. So if you're a victim and you come to us, we will follow the law. And we will not, our goal will not be, let's enter into PR mode. Our goal will be, how can we help you? How can we minister to you in a way that's just and in a way that includes the legal authorities who are responsible for doing this? Um, So if you are a person who's looking to do abuse or mistreat people, Vista Grande Baptist Church is not the church for you. We will report you. We will do everything we can to make sure you are prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And if you are in an abusive situation, we want to help you. We want the church to be an ally for you. Uh, We want to be like Boaz. We don't just want to not do wrong. We want to go out of our way to do right. We want to create an environment here where you are safe um, and and where we can protect you. So this is what we learned from Boaz. Now let's continue in the story. I know it's a pretty big transition. We're going to continue in the story. We're going to go back to the text. And we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 20, and we're going to talk about what we can learn from Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So Naomi asked for God's blessing on Boaz, she points out that He's a Redeemer. And that's a very important term, Redeemer. That word Redeemer occurs 23 times. Redeem, Redeemer, Redemption, 23 times in this short book. So when you have a short book, four chapters, and you have a word that occurs 23 times, you say, oh, that must be significant to the story. Right? Now there's a custom that's behind this that's foreign to us. So when we read it for the first time, we say, I don't understand that. And that makes sense. So I'm going to try to explain the foreign custom that's behind this idea of redemption here, okay? First of all, this custom involves land. When you have a a firstborn son who's going to inherit the land and he dies, the nearest redeemer, the nearest kinsman, the nearest brother, the nearest relative can purchase the land, and that's significant because the land stays in the family. It stays with the name, and the land is important. It's an inheritance from God. We've seen that. I hope you've seen that as you've been reading through Secondly, you have this issue of uh, uh, there's a provision for when a man dies, his widow can marry the nearest brother, the nearest redeemer. And he can redeem her, which is, which is about what? It's, about, it's ultimately about having a son who potentially is the Messiah, the promised one who can crush the serpent's head. That's why that's so significant. They're waiting for the Messiah, the promised one. And so th- this, is the, this, is, this is kind of the custom that's behind this. So Naomi and Ruth come up with a plan to let Boaz know of their interest in in Ruth marrying him. And look at how Boaz responds to this. Chapter 3, verse 10. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, speaking to Ruth. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. So Boaz commends Ruth in her interest in marrying him. Why? Because she's showing loyal faithfulness to her mother-in-law. He says this is a greater act of kindness than the first. What was the first? The first is when she left her home country and came to follow Naomi and said, I pledge to be with you. Now, she's willing to to marry this man, wants to marry this man. Why? What does that do for Naomi? It redeems Naomi. She's now going to have the land back in her family and potentially a son who could potentially be the Messiah. And so we see that God is at work. He's working through faithfulness people. He's working through kind people. He's working through ordinary people. Notice these are ordinary people. These are not prophets. These are not priests. These are not kings. These are not judges. These are ordinary, run-of-the-mill people. Ruth and Boaz. And God is using them in the midst of difficult circumstances and in the midst of a lot of unfaithfulness. He's using them uh, for his purposes. And a fun exercise I think you might want to consider, I've been doing it in my head the past week, is kind of thinking or creating a timeline of key events in your past, key events, key turns, key twists, when a decision was made, when, when, when this happened, when that happened, and think about those key moments in your life. And then maybe go back and think about who were some of the people that God used in those moments? Maybe a person who said something. Maybe a person who did something. Maybe a person who was especially kind or faithful. God puts people in our lives. It's a part of our backstory. And you may not even remember them. So that's why I'm encouraging you to think about it right out. What are the key moments, key twists and turns, and who were the people involved? I'll give you an example from my life. I was just sharing this past week with someone. When I was in eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, high school, I was involved in a discipleship ministry and several guys discipled me. And some of them described me as a sponge. I was a sponge. I just soaked things up. I had questions I want to know. And I said, I want to read books. Tell me what books do I need to be reading? I want to understand the Bible. I want to understand the faith. And they happened to put really good books in my hands. You know, I was in the eighth grade reading J.I. Packer and A.W. Tozer and C.S. Lewis. And I look back at it now, you know, and I say that was a key part of my backstory. You know, God used those people who could have put junk in my hands, and I'm very grateful they didn't. They put good stuff, quality. You know, and, and, and God used that to really, in a large way, to part of making me who I am today. And so, think back to those key moments, key events, influential people, and if they're still alive, thank thank them and thank God for them. And then think about how you can be a person. You can be a key influential person in the life of someone's timeline. And some of you are. You know, I think that about those of you who are involved in our children's ministry, youth ministry, college ministry, and you're there with kids regularly. And I know, I know why you're there. You're there to, to love them and serve them and, and, and speak truth into them and to be, to be a, a person who shows kindness and faithfulness and to have an influence. And I say, way to go. Thank you for doing that. That's how God works. God is in control in difficult circumstances, working through people who are faithful and kind, third and finally, to accomplish His plans and purposes. Ruth might seem like just sort of a neat story with some good morals, but it's much bigger. God is doing something. And it involves more than just Ruth, and it involves more than just Naomi, and it involves more than just Boaz. This is the backstory to a much bigger story. Look with me at chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So this is referring here to the people of the town. By the way, what town are they in? Bethlehem. That's a significant place where this happens. The people of the town of Bethlehem pray that Ruth will become like Rachel and Leah. Who were Rachel and Leah? They are influential people in the story. They're a part of the backstory. They are women who were once barren and God reversed their situation. God reversed their circumstances and He did powerful things through them and through their children, through their sons, And God accomplished His plans through them. And now the people of the town of Bethlehem are praying that the same kind of thing will happen with with Ruth. May she be like Rachel and Leah. May God reverse her situation, reverse her circumstances, and bring about His plans and His purposes through her. And by the way, do you think that happens? Yes, it does. That's why we're here this morning. She has a son. Look at verse 17, chapter 4. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. There it's a reference, of course, to her grandson. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth has a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. And David is the last word of this book. Chapter 4, verse 22. Why is that significant? Because he's going to become the king that Israel needs. And therefore, Ruth becomes the backstory of the story of God's king. And therefore, Ruth becomes the backstory not just of King David, Ruth becomes the backstory of King Jesus. Right? The son of David, who was born in the little town called Bethlehem. Right? In the very first verse of our New Testament, Matthew 1 1, tells us significantly, Jesus is a son of David. And then it goes on just, just five verses later, chapter one, verse five, and tells us he's a son of Ruth. Ruth is a part of the lineage. Ruth is mentioned in the New Testament. She's a part of the line. And that same verse, Matthew chapter one verse five, also mentions Rahab. Rahab is the mother of Boaz. say, "Wow, the genealogy of Jesus includes these two women, and think about who they are. One is a prostitute from Jericho. Rahab. One is a Moabite woman who happened to just be a daughter-in-law of a woman named Naomi. But here's the significance. Why is this significant? God has a plan from the very beginning. He's going to send His Son and His Son is going to be the Savior of the world. And He's going to save the world. People like Ruth. People like Rahab. Through his work on the cross, there are going to be many Ruths and many Rahabs that are going to come and be a part of the family of God and the people of God. This is God's heart from the beginning, to bless all peoples through Abraham, through Israel. And by the time you get to Judges, you say, I don't see how that's going to happen. Because Israel's in many ways, worse off than the nations. How can Israel be a blessing to the nations? They're no different than the nations. How is that going to work? Here's the answer. God's in control. And He's working in the midst of difficult circumstances. He's working in the midst of seemingly impossible circumstances. And He's working through people, individuals, people who are kind, people who are faithful, to bring about and accomplish His plan. What's His plan? For His Son, Son of Abraham, Son of David, Son of God, to be born to be the Savior of the world. And the incredible news for you and me, we get to be included in that. We get to be included in the story. We get to be included in the family. We get to become a part of the lineage. Right? And, and, and you say, well, how? How does that happen? All, it's very simple. You just have to recognize you're an outsider. You're a foreigner. You don't belong. Why do you not belong? Because of your sin. You're an unlikely candidate. You have to come to realize that. I am unlikely to be a part of the family of God because of my sin. But secondly, you have to look to Jesus Christ and trust that God was in control in sending His Son. And not just in sending His Son, God was in control with the death of His Son. You have to believe that God was crushing His Son for you. Jesus became like Naomi in some ways. Life was bitter for Him. He he was emptied of everything, including His life. But God was in control. God was doing that. And during those three days that He was in the tomb, I'm sure His disciples felt like, well, this is the end. This is death. This is the end. We must have been wrong. But during those three days, the fish was on the move. God was on the move. God had a plan. He was very much in control. God had orchestrated this from the beginning. Just like He was in control with Naomi and her situation, He's in control with Jesus and His situation. And the proof is that God raised Him from the dead. Three days later, He walked away, demonstrating He is in fact the Savior of the world the Savior of many Naomi's, many Ruth's, many Rahab's, and He's the King. So make sure you know Him as your Savior and your King. Make sure you're trusting in Him and you can become a part of His story and His family. Let's pray.